Okay, let's, uh, let's read from Romans chapter 11 and begin in verse 33, because this is the context in which the foundation stone of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is laid. And what I want to encourage you to do, <clears throat> hopefully you've been working and memorizing these verses, because I think they are critical to your Christian experience. Uh, so Romans 12, 1 and 2 will be the, the, the centerpiece of our focus, but it's in a context that we have to acknowledge. <clears throat> So the end of chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, meaning you can't figure them out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor or advisor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? which I believe is the essence of the gospel, isn't it? God does not owe you, and he never can. What you get from God is a gift. From him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever. One translation says, yes, yes, yes. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, and that's that generic statement, brothers and sisters in Christ, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now, this morning, I want to talk about true worship. What is it really? Okay? Some of you may have said to someone this morning on the phone, I got to go. I'm going to worship. Okay, I'm going to church. And the church, what are we going to do? What do you guys do at church? We worship. And I hope that's true. I hope that's true. I hope you don't come from such a rushed and frenzied pace that you can't focus on God. And I hope you start before you get here. Because if you get here and say, that's when I worship, then you are probably not a worshiper. Okay? If it doesn't start before you get here, it's probably not worship that you're doing here. It's probably habitual practices, rituals, the things of religion. What is worship to you? Unfortunately for many of us, worship is confined to a time and a place, and certain activities. I go to a building on Sunday morning. When we're there, we give, we sing, we listen, and worship ends. That is not a biblical definition of worship. It's a funny thing if you look at this in Scripture, because when churches talk about worship wars, what are they talking about? They're talking about how we should live on Monday and where we're struggling to try to work out how we honor God on Monday morning. Is that what worship wars are? Now, you know what worship wars are in contemporary churches, modern churches? It's debates over which songs we should and shouldn't sing. Because worship is what? Oh, singing, isn't it? Because we have a very narrow view of what it means to worship God. This this morning, my desire is to, if I say this afternoon, it's because 
during the funeral service yesterday, Dave and Laura can attest, I kept saying this morning because that's like out of habit. So I'm, I'm readjusting back to Sunday morning. So if I say this afternoon, just ignore it, and you know what I mean, okay? I mean, afternoon a.m., all right? <clears throat> so as we go into this text, I want you to see the heart of worship, what true worship really is. And the first thing I want to point out to you this morning is this. True worship, okay, is always and must be a response, okay? It is always a response. Something has been done by God for us, and we respond back to Him with worship. Okay, now that can look, that can look, or can appear, I'm sorry, in, in, in various ways. It can appear in service, it can appear in giving, it can appear in singing, it can appear in loving our wives, it can appear in loving uh, our, our children, it can appear in many, many ways. Worship is a response to the blessings of God. And so in this verse, what does Paul say? He says, therefore, which means what? Something came before, something preceded. A truth that's written in this text precedes that governs the response that Paul's calling for. It is, it is the basis upon which he says to the church, I urge you, which is somewhere between a command and a plea or entreaty. The intensity of the word, I urge you. It's kind of like a coach crying out to a, to a wrestler on the mat, urging them. It's, it, it's, it's not a command. It would sound kind of weird. I'm telling you, do this. It's a, it's a, do this, do this. Okay, it's an entreaty. It's an urging. It's what a parent does with their child typically. Very seldom do we descend to the level of absolute black and white command. And in this context, what's Paul doing? Paul's saying, God in heaven, amazing, has done something marvelous for you. And in light of what he's done, I am urging you. I am entreating you. Look at what God has done and live your life as a response to the goodness of God. That's what worship, after all, is all about. Look at the, the mercies of God that Paul calls out in verse 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercy of God that He just painted on the wall of their life, respond appropriately. So what is Romans chapter 1 through 11? Romans chapters 1 through 11 is the discussion of the doctrines of the grace of God. It's a, it's a logical, rational presentation of God's love for you. In spite of your sinfulness, He sends His Son to change your life and He fills you with the Spirit to live a new life. That's Romans 1 through 11. In light of that mercy that rescues from your sin, I urge you. That's what Paul is saying. So, what is worship then? Worship is not me trying to appease the wrath of God. It is not me trying to satisfy a God who is ticked off at me, angry, frustrated with me. Okay, if you remember the old movies, you would, you would, you would watch, I remember The Bridge Over the River Kauai. I don't know why I remember this movie, but as a kid, we used to watch that movie. Okay, and in that movie, there was a, a scene along the river where there are mountains, and there's thunder and lightning and, and boom, boom, and all this stuff is going on. And the people in the movie look at each other and say, the gods must be mad. <laughs> as a kid, I'll never forget watching that, but, and so what do you do then? Well, then you have to appease the gods. You have to do something to moderate the wrath. That's how most people see worship. What they do for God is done as a means of appeasement. It's done as a means of recommending themselves to God. It's not coming to God in light of His mercy and grace that forgives. It's an attempt to find favor with God based upon one's performance. I was talking to the man at the deli right up front here yesterday. 
He's an Indian gentleman. Uh, opened his business up, I don't know, four, five, six months ago. I would encourage you to stop in. He is an absolutely amazingly wonderful, loving, sweet man. Came out and sat down at the table. I was having an egg sandwich early in the morning. Came out and sat down. He said, uh, all right, you're a Christian, right? He knows I pastor over here. So I'm not sure how he knows that, but somehow he knows that. And he said, uh, you Christians don't believe in reincarnation, do you? So how do you know that? He said, uh, he said, in the Indians, we believe in reincarnation. I said, well, tell me about it. I said, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. My hope is not in reincarnation. My hope is in the resurrection of Christ. I said, well, tell me how it works. He said, well, there's these cycles of, of karma. And if you do enough good, and I kid you not, because a couple of weeks ago we talked about the scale. He said, well, basically it's like a scale. And if we do enough good, when we come back, we're moving up towards through a levels of experiences of reincarnation. And the ultimate hope is that you would bounce out of that cycle into an indescribable place of joy. And I said, I said, well, one thing we agree on, there is an indescribable place of joy. But how you get there, we differ on. I looked right at him. I said this. I said, look, you know I'm a pastor. I said, I'm not good enough to do the reincarnation thing. One day I would be like an amoeba <laughs> floating in the water that you're drinking. Okay? And just being swallowed and literally being recycled. That's what would happen to me. Okay? God gives me what I deserve. I looked around and said, I'm in big trouble. Pray that one day God will give the chance for that conversation to continue because he comes out and talks to me. Okay? And I was loving. I said, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. And... I said, I can't, I, can't, I can't appease God. I can't. I'm too sinful. To earn God's favor. What does Paul say here? Paul says, in light of the mercy of God, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg with you to do something that is radical and transformational. What is he calling them to do? He's calling them to worship. He's not calling them to sing songs. That's not what he says here. He says, I'm calling you to do something that is radical, that is total and transformational. So worship is first a response. If I don't understand what God has done for me, I have no reason to make such a sacrifice. I'm not going to give up my life for something that I hope for, but I will give up my life for something I am sure of. And that's what Paul lays out in Romans 1 through 11. He says, now, therefore, in light of all of that, I urge you and I plead with you based upon the mercies of God, that in verse 33, now just, let me just touch base on this one thought of the, of the riches that Paul's talking about. He, he gets to verse 33 in chapter 11 after writing this full, logical, kind of legalese, forensic discourse about the gospel and how God is just in forgiving sinners through the shed blood of Christ. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And when he gets to verse 33, he says, oh, he just... He's like, had it with logic. And what does he do? He drifts into the realm of, of empirical, emotional, experiential response to God. And he just says, oh, listen to this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What is Paul? Paul is stunned. By what? By what God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has just directed him to write. And he sits back and he reflects in his mind. He says, oh, the riches Oh, the glory. How, oh, the depths. And, and, and the picture ultimately is this. is 
His ways and his judgments are unsearchable. And his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been God's advisor? Have you ever tried to advise God? I have. Sometimes we're not praying as in asking. We're telling questions and requests to God, aren't we? Oh, the depths. Paul says, you, you, you would be amazed if you knew how deep it was. In my simple mind, I was on the Delaware last Monday with my wife and forget who else was with us. Somebody else was with us. I hope they got out with us. I took my paddle. At one point, I was like, okay, I can't see the bottom. Okay, that must be deep. This is how easily I'm amazed, okay? I take the six-foot paddle. I shove it down. Water was five feet deep. And I'm like, wow, honey, this is, <laughs> think about this. That's really deep. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Because it's not really, but I was in, I caught my attention. On July 3rd, July 4th, July 5th, I was out in the ocean with some friends fishing. We're out about seven miles by what's called the Atlantic City Reef outside of, uh, Atlant oh, just off the shore from Atlantic City. And the water was 55 feet deep. I'm smart, so what did I do? It was like 99 degrees. I said, I'm going in. So I jump into the water. I'm thinking, then I'm out there, I'm thinking... You kind of get that Jaws sound in the back. And I, here's what I had, the feeling of being absolutely vulnerable and feeling unbelievably small. Because I realized, it, I mean, sitting in the ocean at 55 feet, you're small. So I thought it would impress my son-in-law who was in the Coast Guard. And I called him and I said, I jumped in. It was 55, deep and I, 55 feet deep. I jumped in. I had no flippers on. I had no tank. I had nothing. I jumped in. He wants to impress me, so he tells me they were in water a mile deep, over 5,000 feet. You know what he said to me? He says, I'm not that dumb. <laughs> he said, I was amazed, but I'm not going in there. Guys were out there swimming. I didn't know. Folks, what is, what is Paul saying here? He says, when you start thinking of the depths of God's love, of the riches of his mercy to us in Christ, you're going to be amazed. And that's the perfect place to be. Because when you're amazed, you know what you are? You are inclined to surrender. I thought as I was sitting in the, laying in the, I don't know what it's, floating in the ocean. I thought, what if they drove the boat away? Which I thought, they could do, these guys could do that to me. I, I, I would be, and I would be thinking about the depths and what's in there. And, but I, I was amazed, but I wasn't like blown away. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, oh. Right? And that, oh, that response Brings him to a place where he, he just boldly calls these people to something that is absolutely radical, ridiculous level of commitment. So worship is a response to the magnificence of God. And then secondly, it is this. It is a call to total, daily, full surrender of my existence, my life, every second to God. That's what worship is. How does Paul state it? Look what it says. Brothers, in light of God's mercy, with that in the background, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. My first thought to, can you imagine Jewish believers hearing that? What is in their mind? What's in their mind is the Old Testament sacrificial system. You took an animal, you laid it on the altar, it was utterly and completely consumed. There was no getting off. 
There was no coming down. It was a total consumption of the offering. Going up to God as what? As a pleasing aroma. That is the picture of this text. That what Paul urges them to do is to present their bodies. And the question you have to ask is, okay, what does Paul mean here by body? Okay, what does he mean? And I believe what Paul means is the physical vehicle in which you live out your life. So when Victor Kelly walked in today, in my mind, I didn't say this, but in my mind, I said, Victor's here. I don't know if Victor's here or not. Victor's mind might be off in Germany on his trip from last week. I don't know. But there's Victor. What I, I saw the body in which he did the work. Bobby Bresney was here this work, working on this beautiful trim to make this look nicer for us. Okay? His body was here. And he was here doing something, right? Our body is the vehicle in which we work out our life. But what is Paul saying then? He's not saying God just wants your body. God wants everything you do in that body. He wants everything you think in that body. He wants everything you see with your eyes. He wants everything you say with your mouth. He wants you. And Paul, in light of God's goodness, can say this. How could you not? That's what he's saying. Oh, the glory of God, the riches of God. Give him everything. So that all, it's all a response, but it is a, it is a call to a total, full surrender. It's me saying, this isn't my life. God, through the blood of Christ, has purchased me, has changed me. And my response is one of full surrender. So the key command that governs these verses, I believe as you go down through the rest of the chapter, is put yourself on the altar in your body that is the vehicle on which you live. And this becomes then a metaphor that expands worship from singing on Sunday morning. Okay, so that what Paul is encouraging them to do, give yourself to God. He's not just saying, oh, when you come on Sunday morning, as I challenge you and encourage you to do last Sunday, sing passionately, do that. But do not think that once you have done that, that you have worshipped God. That you have fulfilled the command or desire of God to own your life and for you to surrender it fully to Him. Go to the next thing that it says then in the verse. It says, offer your body as living sacrifices. And one writer has made this observation. You've probably heard this somewhere along the way. What's the problem with living sacrifices? All right, you put them on the altar. What do they want to do? They want to crawl off the altar. Okay, that's our problem, isn't it? We're on again and we're off again. We're fully devoted and we're thinking about the fire's getting hot. I'm losing a lot here, and we kind of want to, and we constantly have to recommit ourselves to God and say, yes, God, it's costly to follow you, but in light of your mercy, in light of what is to come, I give myself to you. Paul says this, giving of yourself, giving your body to God as a living, the life, it is your, and listen to these words, I'm reading New International Translation, it is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, the two Greek words are these. Logikos, what word do we get from that? Logical. Okay, and the second word is latreia in the Greek. What word do we get from that? Happens in churches, high church. Okay, liturgy. Okay, so it's your logikos latreia. Okay, it is your logical worship. What is liturgy? Liturgy is the steps that an individual in a high church setting goes through to appease God. To please God, to satisfy God. That's what it is. And the word logical in this text says what? 
liturgy of full surrender, that step, that regular movement towards God with all that you are, in Paul's mind is what? It's logikos. That worship of God that is radical and full, like getting on an altar surrender, makes perfect sense to Paul. So you could say it this way. It is rational surrender. That's what worship is. It's not irrational that a Christian would commit themselves to Christ and say, I'll go wherever God wants me to go. What does Paul say? In light of what God has done, he says, I count my life as nothing dear to myself, so that, what? I may please Christ. What is he saying? I'm into logical worship. If God, in Christ, has done all of Romans 1 through 11 for me, then it is logical that I would hear the call of Paul. I urge you, give yourselves to God. And I would say, you know what, Paul? That makes perfect sense. Do you see? And I give myself to you. My wife was getting out of the car yesterday. Phil and uh, my pastor friend Harry were putting saddlebags on Harry's bike. My wife gets out of the car and I said, there's my beautiful wife. And Harry, my pastor friend, says, that's proof of unconditional election. Meaning, that can only be God that would give you a woman like that. (laughs) Only God could do that for you. I said, you know what, that's true. But I said, my commitment to her was logical. Her commitment to me, completely irrational. Okay, my commitment to her makes perfect sense in my mind. Your commitment to God should make perfect sense. If you comprehend, if you think about the grace of God in Christ, it makes, to not fully surrender to God is what doesn't make sense. Do you see? I mean, if someone has done that much for you, and you say this to your kids, right? You raise your kids, you pour yourself in them, nothing like what Jesus did for you. And what do you think? You owe me. Respect me. Love me. Write me. Call me. Right? That's what, it's reasonable. That's what we're saying. I did this for you. You owe me. It's not grace. It's not grace. But it's how we tend to live. And unfortunately, it's how many of us tend to relate to God. That if I don't give myself fully to God, then God's going to punish me. You know what? Probably not. But you will not experience the joy you could have. The joy of full surrender. It's logical. It's Paul saying, Paul saying, I call you to this. I understand it is, I am calling you to complete surrender, but I'm doing exactly what Jesus did. What did he say to his disciples? If any man wants to come after me, if anyone wants the benefits that are bound up in the work of Christ, what must they do? They must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. You know what I need to do? I need to get back on the altar daily. Okay, I need to remind myself of the goodness of God, allow the Spirit of God to prompt me to think about the grace of God and respond to that in the only logical way. And the only logical way in light of the mercy of God is full surrender. So it is total surrender that makes complete sense when it is properly understood. And it is to be done daily. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ over and over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I die daily. Now, folks, that's what we need to do. We need to recommit ourselves on a regular basis because we tend to forget the love of God. So it is total. It is rational. Meaning it makes sense. Can I just read for you this psalm? Listen to this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to him and bless his name. What comes next? What's the next word? You may not know the rest of it. What's the next word? Do this, this, and this. Do you know the next word? For. Okay, give God glory. Give him thanks. Give him praise. For. And what does he say? For the Lord is good and his love endures and his faithfulness continues through all generations. Right? What? It's, it's, it's logical that you would enter into the gates and get on the altar on a daily basis and give your life to God. Why? He is good. Go to the book of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and power and blessing. Why? For he purchased with his blood people from every tongue, nation, and language. Do you see? Our response, our, our worship is always a response. He deserves full and total surrender. And when we surrender in that kind of a way, the world around you that doesn't know Christ is going to say, I don't understand that. But as a Christian, you're going to look and you're going to say, I understand. Marie Kara, probably in January, if God brings everything together, is probably going to go to Cambodia for a year. She's, not, she's at a wedding this weekend, okay? Number one, I hope some of you will help her do it. I hope she doesn't have to wait for support. Okay? Just say that from my heart. Okay? Secondly, some of us have said, Cambodia? You know what Cambodia's like? Okay. I, knowing Marie's love for Christ, she probably hasn't even thought about it. Why? It, it makes perfect sense that I would go and put my life at risk for the one who gave his life for me. He didn't take a risk. He gave his life. It makes perfect sense. And when you surrender in this way, what happens? Okay, verse 2 says this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know how many Christians live in utter confusion because they don't live a life of worship? Who are distracted and morally confused because the first thought on their mind is not, how can I please God? It's, what can I get out of this day for me? Folks, that road will destroy your life. When you live for yourself, you'll tear at your marriage. You'll tear at your parental relationship. You'll tear at your work relationships because you're there for you. What is God saying? God's saying, get on the altar. It's for me. And it makes perfect sense. And when you do submit yourself to God in this kind of a way, what happens? What happens? Notice what Paul says. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world. And this idea of conforming means... Don't allow the world to press you into what it wants you to be. Or with our teenagers, we call this peer pressure. And we fiercely tell them to resist it while we practice it in our own lives. I remember when I was a kid in a group, I don't know if it was Brigade Boys, or it, was a, it was a Wednesday night program that our church had. We used to take thin sheets of copper and there was a mold underneath of it. It was sometimes like a wagon wheel on a little old barn. And you would, you would lay this thin sheet of copper on top of that, and they would give you a pressing tool, like a dowel, and you would continue to press at this piece of copper until what happened? Until it took the shape of what was behind it. And then you would pull it off and take it to your parents and say, look what I did. Okay, you look like an artist. What had you done? You had simply conformed, pressured, 
that copper sheet into the form of that mold, and it takes on the likeness, the resemblance. What does God say? Don't let the world do that to you. Don't, and it doesn't mean necessarily people. It means, it means the allures, the attractions, the passions, the desires. Don't let the world's pull suck you in and change who you are as a Christian. Resist that. And then it's fascinating, the next thing he says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's this literally mean? It literally means let God change you. So surrender yourself to God in such a way that the Spirit of God has given free reign in your life to move into any area of your life and change you. And as He changes you, you become a worshiper. Why? Because He's calling you out on sin. He's calling you out in areas of omission. Things that He's called you to do that you're not doing in your life. And He he speaks and He changes. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 5. Keep in step with the Spirit. What is He doing? He's shaping Christ in you. You go back to Romans chapter 7, it says that the Spirit of God comes to shape you, to change you, to reform your life. Folks, that's worship. When I give myself to God in a total way, like clay gives itself to a potter. Clay lays on the wheel. What does it demand? Nothing. Why? It doesn't have a will of its own. And when you go to the Old Testament, what does God call Himself? He calls Himself the potter. The clay is laid on the wheel. The potter shapes the clay, and the clay does not make requests. It doesn't say, hey, what are you doing? I don't want to be a teapot. I'm male clay. All right, I want to be a crock pot. I want to, I don't want to be a plant pot. I want to... It doesn't say that. Right? What is it? It is pliable. It is moldable. It is shapeable. What happens? When I lay myself on the altar and I say, God, here's my life. I have given him permission to shape my life. And the power of the Spirit of God in that context of total surrender will always lead to transformation. So ask yourself this question this morning. Am I changing? And when I say that, I don't mean are you changing for the better? Because in my rebellion against God's call to worship, what happens? I change for the worse. I move in a negative direction. Can you sense today a heart of surrender? We used to sing a song when I was a kid. Here's what it said. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. Victor, you heard that song, didn't you? That's why you're shaking your head. Okay? Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. Does God have you? Is there evidence of transformation that says, I am a worshiper of God? Because the evidence of worship is always the renewing of your mind. God will change how you look at your marriage. He'll change how you look at your money. He'll change how you look at your job. Why? Because it will all become liturgia, latreia. Reasonable worship. It will make perfect sense to you that when you go into work, you ought to be a representative of Jesus because of what he's done for you. And you will find bitterness dies as Christ is formed in you. And you will find your resistance to changing dies as you yield to Jesus.
because a worshiper is always in transition. And a worshiper is always changing for the better. A worshiping husband is always, always, men, a better husband. Because he guards his eyes. He guards his mouth. He guards his heart. And a non-worshipping husband is a disaster because he will be all about himself. May God help us as men to worship. It is transformational. Stop being shaped by, allow God to begin to shape you. The message translation says it this way. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in. And lose your distinction. Folks, the church is losing its distinction. Our marriages look like worldly marriages. Our entertainment looks like worldly entertainment. Our parenting looks like worldly parenting. Because we're not worshipers. And we think, oh, I just need to go to counseling for parenting. I need someone to help me with my marriage. No, you don't. No, you don't. You need someone to help you with your walk with God. You need someone to tell you the truth. That you're letting the world press you into its mold. Paul would jump in your face and say, I urge you. You want your problems in life solved? I urge you, Paul would say. Look at what Christ has done for you. And I think Paul would kind of have the, how dare you? How dare I resist the the shaping influence of the Spirit of God that comes as a result of my birth into the body of Christ purely by grace and undeserved favor. How dare I resist that work that comes to change me and make me the man that God wants me to be. The thing that amazes me is what happens next in this text. So what happens is you go through the rest of chapter 12. Because what does Paul now do? Paul now, after dealing with doctrine, heavy theology, what does he do? He moves over to talk about practical theology. But before he talks about practical living, what does he have to make sure of? He has to make sure that you've already gotten on the altar. He doesn't say, be like this with your wife. Stop arguing with each other. Give room for the wrath of God. Stop being vengeful. He didn't say that. What's the first thing he says? In light of all of that, put yourself on the altar. Then, after that's done, because what do we want? We tend to want fixes. Paul, tell me what to do. You don't have the power to do it if you're not on the altar. The Spirit of God is not unleashed in your life transformationally. So you're trying to do it in your own strength. And what are you? Same thing I am when I try to do it in my strength. A failure. Why? I can't, I can't live that life. God can live it through you. I can't do it. So you, you must take the step of surrender full that brings total transformation and makes perfect sense. And then what? Now, let it fill and filter, I'm sorry, and saturate into every area of your life. Don't be afraid that your marriage is struggling. If you're on the altar, God will deal with you and it. Don't worry about what's happening with your kids. Worry about whether you're on the altar. Don't worry about the troubles at work. Ask yourself, am I surrendered? And let God deal with the things that you can't handle. Okay, and then he calls us into what? Paul calls us into, into a number of areas of obedience. And I'll just read these for you. Verse 3, what does he say? He says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment according with the measure of faith that God has given you. A call to what? Be humble. Be humble. That will, 
That'll solve a whole lot of your problems. But you can't do that until you're on the altar. Okay, folks, look, I've never met a proud, fully devoted Christian. Ever. I've never met myself fully devoted and proud. Pride's a killer. It's the first thing that Paul goes after. Let God change you in every way. As you get on the altar, on an altar, where are you? Oh, my word. You're completely at the mercy of God. You're humble. You're broken. You're realizing all that you deserve that you're not going to get. Verses 4 through 8. What is it? It's a call to service in the body of Christ where pride destroys service. Right? He says, be humble. And then what? Go and serve each other passionately because everyone belongs to each other. But you can't belong to other people if you're proud. You resist people's influence in your life. You stay away from the advice of others and you resist the work of the Spirit. That's what we naturally do. But when you're on the altar, what do you want to do? You hear someone's hurting in your heart. You say, you know what? I want to go serve them. I want to go help them. Go back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Paul writes this letter, not as an apostle. He says, I, Paul, a bond slave of Christ. Not a premier apostle. Not a big speaker coming to town. A slave of Christ. Why? Because he understood the gospel. And he was devoted to the character and service of God. And so when he wrote to them, he did it as a service and he calls them to selfless service. Another thing, verse 9, going down through verse 13, which is very difficult territory. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. In brotherly love, relationships then are what? They're worship. Serving each other is worship. Walking in humility then becomes worship. Worship is not what happens here alone. It is what happens in all of your life. And if it's not happening in all of your life, I'll tell you this, it is not happening for you here. Okay, if my life is not surrendered, then I'm probably going through the motions. And it feels strangely empty. Verses 14 to 21. Worship is my response to provocation. When someone wrongs me, provokes me, taunts me, my response tells me if I am a worshiper. What does Paul say? He says, leave room for the wrath of God. Get away. Back up. Leave room for the wrath of God. Which means what? Let God take care of sin. Don't exalt yourself as God. What is it? That's the height of pride. I, when I'm taking control of my circumstances and I'm going to settle the score, what am I? I'm in the place of God. Phil Yancey said it this way. He said, when you experience conflict, give God elbow room. You know what happens? We're so in there that God can't even begin to work in the circumstance because of our pride. Why? Because we're not on the altar. We're not surrendered. Because if I was fully surrendered, I'd let God be God. And I'd let God take care of the things that he tells me he's going to take care of in Romans 12. If I'm surrendered. You can read through the rest of the passages there. It is, this thought of worship permeates every area of life. And this thought of worship, of surrender, is what I believe drove the response of Joseph to his brothers. When they came and said to him in Genesis 50, verse 19, you're going to kill us? Because we wanted to kill you. And if you want to kill us, I think they're kind of saying this, we understand. Like they expected it. Meaning what? Them judging, or him judging them, to them was perfectly rational. And Joseph could have done it. He was second in command in Egypt. What does he say? Am I in the place of God? Wow. 
You know what that is? That's the highest place of worship. I am not God. And I refuse to take his role in your life. I give you to God. Folks, that's worship. And you know if you're worshiping in how you respond to conflict and strife in your life, do you give it to God or do you take God's place? Because here's what happens. When you do it, think back to Psalm or first. I can't remember the text. Remember the text I quoted at the beginning of the service a few weeks ago? You have thrust me behind your back. Okay, folks, listen. When God is behind my back, I am not a worshiper. I can't. Because I can't see him. What am I? I'm in charge of something I can't control. And it, go, it, just, it will eat at you and destroy you. Bitterness and resentment is, is, is always symptomatic of a lack of worship. Biblical worship, not singing on Sunday morning. Okay? Christian worship is not what happens at a certain location at a certain time. It may be, but it is not necessarily just that. In fact, I think I can say it is not that. Worship is reflected in how I treat my wife. It is seen in how I respond to the needs in my sphere of influence. It is my response to anger that tells me if I'm a worshiper. It is my taking responsibility to serve others seriously. It is balancing my life. It is loving my enemy. That's what Paul says in this text. You can't love your enemy if you're not on the altar because you're going to protect your turf. You don't have to protect an altar. It's where you give up and let God. It is everything that I do in my life for the glory of God. Worship is one vitality receiving a serious diagnosis one week ago and saying to the doctor, I want one day a week where I can go to the hospital. And serve others. That's worship. It's a mom or dad pouring their lives into their children. And caring for them. In spite of the sacrifice and cost. That is worship. Worship is Betty Frazier experiencing headaches and vertigo. And everything imaginable in her body. And going to the nursing home a few times a week. To serve others. That's worship. It's Bob Dietrich leading a study at the Chelsea because he wants God to use his life to the end. You know what I love about talking to Gwen and Bob? I can talk about their end. I can talk about their death face to face. And they are fine. Why? Because they are on the altar worshiping God. Worship is Fran Pilch and Laura Mack leading a grief study. It takes hours and it is draining and they do it with joy because they love serving others. It was people yesterday showing up at her funeral to serve a family in desperate need of assistance and help. I hope it will be our church responding to George Stevens, a man who a few weeks ago we prayed for who is now paralyzed from chest line down without financial help. Happened during recreation. My hope is that as a church, we'll join together and say, you know what? If you need some ramps built, we'll build them. If you need some doors widened, we'll widen them. That's my prayer. That we would become a true worshiping church who kills selfishness, who kills spite, which kills resentment because we are surrendered to God and want to be used, desperately want to be used by him.
True worship is always a response to undeserved favor. Have you responded to God's grace? Do you know it personally? It's not about Sunday morning. It's about all of life. It's why Jesus said to his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your worship and then worship your Father who is in heaven. Folks, do you live a life that people can look at and say there is something different? And only one word could describe it. That's worship. That's worship. And if you live like that, when you come on Sunday morning, I won't have to challenge you. It will be an overflow. It will be, oh, the heights of the depths and the mercy of God. It will be logical, rational, full surrender to all that God is. So whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Because that's the heart of worship. Father, thank you for your word today.